Hi there, I'm Jahan Batuman, and you're listening to Batman v. Batuman. Thanks for listening, and thanks for bearing with me since my last episode was several holidays ago. So let's dive right in. I've got a lot of comics and comic book movies to talk about before I get into my Marvel summary and review. And I'll start with some of my favorite comics from last year and this year. 2018 is upon us, and this year is off to a really strong start, but 2017 wasn't too shabby either, and I wanted to highlight some of the books that you can now pick up in trade paperback form that I enjoyed from last year. In advance, I'm sorry for any names I mispronounce. So last year, I really enjoyed Image Comics' Scales and Scoundrels, Redlands, Spy Seal, and Generation Gone. Scales and Scoundrels by Sebastian Guernier with art by Gelad is a good-looking fantasy book featuring a group of misfit adventurers that join forces to find treasure and fulfill their destinies. The protagonists include a prince and his lifelong bodyguard, and Luvander, the main character, a thief who has secrets within secrets that are just kind of now starting to be revealed in the latest issues. It's a cute and funny story that constantly surprises with thoughtful and unsettling twists on the fantasy genre. Redlands, written by Jordi Belair and drawn by Vanessa Del Rey, is about a group of witches that takes over a town in Florida in order to have a safe place for their kind to live. This is definitely an adults-only book that tackles heavy, sadly relevant themes through some sharp, uncompromising writing and truly beautiful art. Spy Seal's elevator pitch is that it's Tintin with animals, but that comes nowhere close to doing this book justice. It's a legit Cold War spy story with a sense of scale and adventure that makes the initial four-issue run feel like something twice the size. Written and drawn by Rich Tommaso, it has a sincerity in the characters and writing that are reinforced by deceptively detailed art. The first four-issue arc is over, but there's more to come in the future. Generation Gone, written by Alice Cott and drawn by Andre Lima Arruyo, is about a group of hackers that inadvertently unleash a top-secret government biotech program which gives each of them a variation of superpowers. The hackers, already dealing with troublesome relationships and personal problems, find themselves fracturing as they try to make sense of their new lives. Um, So all of these series are still ongoing, but the first arcs are all wrapped up and ready for your bulk consumption. In 2017, DC Comics gave us Batman's The War of Jokes and Riddles, Green Arrow's Hard Traveling Heroes, Mr. Miracle, well, the first half of a Mr. Miracle miniseries, as well as the majority of the DC Metal event, orchestrated by writer Scott Snyder, which, along with most of its crossovers, is pretty bonkers and good reading. It references and adds to previous major DC events, as well as random elements of DC Rebirth and Scott Snyder's own run on Batman a few years ago. I am loving it, but I am also a strong DC partisan, so I'm biased. I'll add the caveat that your interest in metal will be directly proportional to your interest in DC Comics, so keep that in mind. Uh, The two soon-to-conclude miniseries, Gotham City Garage and Batman White Knight, serve as the next best thing to Elseworlds comics that DC has put out recently, so I'll throw those into the if-you-like-DC-comics-pick-these-up category as well, but I won't get into them too much now, though I'll talk about them once they're over in a future episode. DC Elseworlds features familiar characters in unfamiliar circumstances and situations that are not canonical stories, and although the actual Elseworlds imprint has been retired, there are still stories that fit that description. As for the War of Jokes and Riddles, Hard Traveling Heroes, and Mr. Miracle, even the most casual understanding of these characters would be enough to enjoy these stories. In the case of Mr. Miracle, written by Tom King with art by Mitch Gerads, I'd go as far as to say that you'd like it even if you don't really read comics. With the first half of a 12-issue miniseries in the books, Mr. Miracle features characters created by the legendary Jack Kirby as part of the New Gods of the Fourth World, 
a mythology within the DC universe featuring the planets Apocalypse and New Genesis, respectively ruled by the despotic tyrant Darkseid and the more kind-hearted Highfather. Scott Free, aka the escape artist Mr. Miracle, is the son of Highfather, who was traded with Orion, son of Darkseid, as the planets exchanged hostages to ensure peace between them. The Mr. Miracle miniseries is not so much of a reimagining of these characters as it is a use of these otherworldly characters to explore themes like sanity, justice, sense of self, the spectrum of truth, and the very fabric of reality. It's stunningly drawn and unsettlingly written, and I would definitely recommend you check it out. The first half is going to be in trade paperback soon, and the second half starts up again later this month. Also by Tom King, The War of Jokes and Riddles is my favorite Batman arc since DC Rebirth started in 2016. It's a story within a story as Batman tells Catwoman about a conflict between the Riddler and the Joker that nearly tore Gotham apart. The kicker is that the two criminals are fighting over which one of them gets to kill Batman. The War of Jokes and Riddles takes place during Batman's second year of crime fighting, and it's an incredibly told, sprawling tale that humanizes dozens of Batman's villains and shows us how Bruce Wayne overcame a turf war that nearly broke the inexperienced vigilante. The story deserves a spot among top-tier Batman canon, a sort of Batman Year 2 to go along with Batman Year 1, Arkham Asylum, Batman Year 100, The Dark Knight Returns, and other such tales. Hard Traveling Heroes was one of many excellent arcs in Green Arrow as Benjamin Percy's run comes to an end this month. Half homage to older Green Arrow stories, half throwing down of the gauntlet for future Green Arrow writers, this arc features the Green Arrow meeting up with fellow Justice Leaguers as he travels from Seattle to Washington, D.C. to space on a mission to unravel political and corporate corruption that have plagued his city and his country. This arc is a distillation of the motivations that drive the Green Arrow and the sense of political relevance that Benjamin Percy brought to the character. Hard Traveling Heroes is essential reading for fans of the character as well as anyone who enjoys social commentary in comics. Last year, Boom Studios put out and continues to publish Mech Cadet U, which is a lot of fun and wonderfully drawn. Every few years, a batch of enormous robots mysteriously arrive from space and choose random humans to pair with. These robots and humans join forces against the alien Sharg, who seek to destroy the Earth and probably whatever planet the robots are from. This is a great comic for kids and adults alike, as the main characters are middle schoolers who become friends with giant robots. It was originally supposed to be a miniseries, but it got extended into an ongoing series, so check out the first trade paperback and get in on one of the more fun comics from 2017. Takeshi Miyazawa draws it and Greg Pak writes it. Although I don't read much Marvel aside from the books I summarize and review for this podcast, Marvel's Nick Fury miniseries from last year was pretty awesome, and I'll review it for a future episode's Marvel summary and review. The art and story structure were really interesting and kind of hard to describe, which doesn't bode well for my summary, but I still want to tackle it regardless. It was drawn by Aiko and written by James Robinson, who jumped over to DC right after finishing Nick Fury and is now writing Wonder Woman and Trinity. So as you can see, 2017 was a pretty good year for comics. There were plenty I enjoyed beyond these highlights, but I want to mention a few from this year that are shaping up to be great runs. Vertigo's two new six-issue miniseries, Deathbed by Joshua Williamson and Riley Rossmo, as well as Motherlands by Cy Sperrier and Rachel Stott, are off to great starts and are on pace to be two of my favorites of recent years. Motherlands is a sci-fi action comedy about a struggling bounty hunter who has to work with her retired bounty hunter mother to hunt down her fugitive brother. It's kind of like Rick and Morty meets reality TV, as bounty hunters in this future are celebrity figures with TV deals. The main character's mother is a former celebrity who's fallen on hard times, and uses the hunt for her son as an opportunity to get back into the public eye. 
Motherlands is foul-mouthed without being juvenile, although there are plenty of juvenile moments, and it deals with family drama in a pretty hilarious way, providing commentary on entertainment and family dynamics without being too on-the-nose about those issues. Deathbed is less sci-fi and more fantasy horror, but also quite funny. A mysterious retired adventurer hires a ghostwriter to follow him around on one final adventure as he prepares to die. Having accumulated a lifetime of human, undead, and fantastical foes, the adventurer intends to take them all on, one by one, until one of them kills him. The ghostwriter, a struggling novelist, agrees to tag along, even as she acknowledges that it's probably a really bad idea. From the description, it sounds somewhat straightforward, but with the overall art and the last few pages of the first issue, this comic veers right into the surreal and trippy. Both of these series are wonderfully drawn, and the writers are on top of their games, with the debut issues standing out as some of the finest number ones I've read in a while. If you're too impatient to pick up comics issue by issue, both Deathbed and Motherlands should be collected in trades by the end of the year. Alright, anyway, there have been other good comics that started up in the last few months, but I'll save them for another episode because I want to get into some movie talk. Aside from the holidays and my general laziness, part of why this episode took me so long to make was the gargantuan task of reviewing Justice League. There are plenty of normal reviews of it out there, but I didn't want to and kinda couldn't approach this movie the same way that those reviews did. I'll begin by saying that the hardest part of reviewing Justice League is how to begin. This is no ordinary film. There is writing, acting, special effects, and everything else that one can objectively discuss in rating the quality of a film, but aside from the acting, which was pretty good all around, None of the components of this movie can be reviewed the same way as other movies. Most other movies don't have as much drama, tinkering, post-production director issues, CGI mustaches, or corporate mergers to deal with. Nor do most movies have to serve as a sequel for a movie that got bad reviews as production on the sequel was already underway, and then face studio-mandated changes mid- and post-production. I'd go as far as to say that Justice League was pretty much doomed from the start. And despite that, it's not a horrible movie. It has some fun moments, and some good scenes that deserve to be part of a better movie, as well as a cast that pretty much nails their respective roles despite being part of a movie that feels like three different movies jammed together into one movie that feels like half of a real movie. Anyway, if you haven't seen it yet and want to see it without hearing any spoilery stuff, jump ahead about 8 minutes. I'll wait a second here in case you need a moment to do so. Alrighty. I'll start with the behind-the-scenes and on-screen issues before getting into what I liked, so that there's a light at the end of the tunnel in this review. I can't really get into too much detail on any of these factors, mostly because a lot of it is still rumor right now, but Justice League had to face a lot of obstacles during and after principal photography. This movie got shot pretty much back-to-back -back with Batman v Superman, and was supposed to be a two-parter. Part of why BVS was so jam-packed with complicated, underdeveloped ideas was to set up stuff that would get resolved in the two Justice League movies. Scenes like the nightmare, Batman dream within a dream, and Lex Luthor's claim at the end of the film that forces beyond our comprehension were coming to Earth were all intended to set up the arrival of aliens from Apocalypse, a war-loving planet led by the tyrannical dictator aspiring master of the universe Darkseid. His nephew, or uncle if you dig the comics, Steppenwolf, was to be the leader of his vanguard, and we certainly did get Steppenwolf in Justice League, but more on that later. The point is that rather than a full-throated Here Comes Darkseid setup in the now one standalone Justice League movie, we got a tepid exposition of Apocalypse and a one-and-done Steppenwolf that literally mentions Darkseid once in a throwaway line as the movie just sells poor Steppenwolf as a random alien villain who lives to conquer worlds and seeks to find three glowing boxes. That's another sad thing that got lost in the Apocalypse shuffle. Justice League's restriction to one standalone movie meant that the incredible mother boxes, items of immense power and potential, barely got their due. 
Their power, their personality, their capability, all of that got lost in the reshoots, rewrites, and shakeups that plagued Justice League. Instead, we got three glowing boxes with vague powers that were really just MacGuffins to move the plot along. So yeah, perhaps due to the high concept sci-fi nature of Mother Boxes and Apocalypse, the studio forced all the cool alien stuff that would have set the stakes for future DC Extended Universe movies into one very simple plot for one very simple and very simple looking villain. By simple looking, I mean the CGI on Steppenwolf. Yikes. First of all, all due respect to the hardworking digital artists who had to rush along mustache masking and reshoot content at a rate that made it impossible for them to do their best work, or even halfway close to their best work. Digital effects that should have had twice as much time were forced on the VFX teams because of the studio's strange mandate that this film come out on its scheduled release date. More on that later. But slightly more confusing than Henry Cavill's Superman mustache looking goofy is the quality of Steppenwolf. He looks like a video game character. A lot of the CGI looks like it's from a video game, which is to say that it would have looked awesome in a movie five or six years ago. Again, a lot of the blame goes to the rush schedule. So when a questionably rendered Batman swings around on a ladder in the opening scene, which, by the way, why not just shoot that with a stunt person in a Batman suit? Why CGI that? Or when the Justice League is standing together to heroic music for the third time in the movie and you can clearly see that half of them are not real, why shoot that scene in the first place if you already have two other scenes where they're all standing together? Anyway, the blame for that shouldn't go to the digital artists. Because a chunk of the blame for what we got in Justice League actually goes to the studio executives who realized that if the movie was delayed to accommodate quality effects and proper reshoots, it would mean that those executives would lose bonuses prior to the Warner Brothers and AT&T merger. This was one of the most depressing revelations in the aftermath of Justice League. If ever a movie could have used a delay to tune it up, regardless of the bad press such a move would have resulted in, it was Justice League. Positive reviews and word of mouth would have surely made up for any negative vibes from a delayed release. Of course that's easier to say than to expect, but having studio executives force a release of a half-baked movie just to make more bonus money for themselves isn't really a meritorious alternative. Part of why they did release it as scheduled is because of the reshoots and director change post-production, or depending on which rumors you believe, mid-production, from Zack Snyder to Joss Whedon. Snyder is more of a wham-bam visually oriented director and Whedon is more of a zippy dialogue storytelling director, and by mixing their styles through intensive reshoots and post-production, we got a movie that had an inconsistent visual style and inconsistent storytelling. I'm oversimplifying the qualities that these directors bring, but the end result of Snyder's principal photography and Whedon's reshoots was a really weird mishmash of very different styles of directing. Add the limited budget and timing Whedon had to shoot additional scenes, then run post-production on them in addition to the initial Snyder footage, and it's easy to understand why we had some scenes look like they came from a CW Network DC show, or worse, instead of a major studio blockbuster. The multiple scenes from the trailers that didn't make it into the final product alone are a red flag, and a hint of how much went on behind the scenes before this movie got released. While Justice League represented a course correction after Batman v Superman, it retained too much of the intended sequel to that film prior to the course correction to truly be one or the other. Some things were better, some things were worse, and most of it just felt out of place. Ben Affleck's Bruce Wayne was actually a pretty solid aspect of BVS, aside from his somewhat over-the-top insistence that Superman had to be eliminated. But Justice League and the reshoots really watered him down to the point where he just felt like a tentative member of the Justice League instead of a founder. The mishmashed production also did a disservice to two of the best parts of Man of Steel and BVS, Martha Kent and Lois Lane. Although Amy Adams and Diane Lane did their best here, the writing and the opportunities for their characters was underwhelming considering the quality of their acting and what they accomplished in their two previous films. 
The reshoots were also part of the studio's mandate that the movie be a mere two hours in length, more lighthearted than BVS, and have members of the League fit more of a mainstream understanding of their motivations and personalities. All of that contrasted sharply with what Snyder set up in BVS. Love it, hate it, or fall somewhere in the middle like myself, we can all agree that BVS was really different than what Marvel was doing with its Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's also really different than what we got in Justice League. I didn't like everything that Snyder did or set up in BVS, but I think he had a concrete plan in place that was derailed by the fierce and, frankly, over-the-top criticism that that movie received. It certainly deserved enough of the criticism that I was happy to see a shift in producers and management for DC Films, but apparently that new leadership came in too late to do anything about the DC movies prior to the upcoming Aquaman. So all of this is really to say that a lot of what went wrong with Justice League was very fluky. A culmination of events that seems almost unbelievable and frankly cartoonishly goofy. But it all happened. And there's nothing that we as fans can do about it but shake our heads and hope for the best for the next few movies. Here's looking at you, Aquaman. But all of that negativity couldn't take away the things that Justice League got right. Like I said, all of the actors were game and suited their characters well. Although his story arc got chopped up and lost amid reshoots and the abandonment of Snyder's plans, Superman returned and seemed to be a positive, charismatic force that Henry Cavill exhibited in spurts throughout Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. Whedon's experience with ensemble casts and dialogue writing gave us some great group scenes and character development. A few scenes really stood out for me, like the newly resurrected Superman facing off against the Justice League, especially when the Flash starts running and Superman side-eyes him. Aquaman sitting on the lasso of truth, the Flash's introduction, and some of the action sequences, along with J.K. Simmons' sliver of screen time as Commissioner Gordon, made the movie worthwhile. Despite a lack of proper development with the team dynamics, the characters work well together and the actors make up for the rushed introductions. All of these good moments deserved a better movie around them, and there's no guarantee that Zack Snyder's original cut would have given us that movie. There's also no guarantee that Whedon, given more time and money, could have done that either. The sad truth is that with so many things working against this movie between the release of BVS and Justice League's own release, this movie never really had a chance. I think it's still worthwhile and deserves to be seen in case you haven't seen it, but it's not what anyone involved deserved, and it's not what we as fans deserved. But it's here, it's out, I saw it twice, and I'll see it again. People like me are going to keep seeing these movies no matter what, but if DC Films is going to attract the amount of casual moviegoers that Marvel does, then the new leadership is unfortunately going to have to work twice as hard now as they would have if Justice League had worked out the way we all hoped it would. I want to digress from DC movies before I get into Marvel movies, so let's talk indie comics real quick as a palate cleanser. I recently had the pleasure of reading the first issue of a black and white science fiction horror comic called Vengeance Nevada, written by B.J. Mendelssohn with art by Pyotr Zaplarsky. This comic starts off in present-day Los Angeles, as a lady named Jacobs, wearing a uniform with a pentagram logo, enters her friend's luxurious home to house-sit for the absent amigo. She greets her friend's cat and settles in, dreaming of a recent encounter she and her badass lady infiltration team had in Nevada. Things went wrong, and Jacobs is faced with startling revelations that are paired with the comic's first bursts of color. The writing is pretty breezy and sure of itself. Whether making music references or throwing crazy twists at Jacobs, it feels like there is a new layer or revelation every couple of pages, and the first issue of Vengeance Nevada does a lot of solid world building and character development in just one issue. Zaplarsky's art is pretty neat too, with some interesting use of perspective and a good eye for horror elements once those pop up later in the book. A few panels kind of resembled optical illusions which added to the surreal nature of the book as well. If you like sci-fi, horror, thriller, mythology, or any combination of these genres, then you might just enjoy Vengeance Nevada. 
It's available on Comixology at $2.99 an issue. Anyway, back to movies. So before I get into my final segment of summarizing and reviewing a Marvel book, I wanted to quickly review the film Black Panther. I say quickly review because you are listening to a podcast about comics, so chances are you've already seen it or plan to see it. If you have already seen it, or plan to, you've also likely read lots of reviews about what makes the movie so good. Better yet, you may have read articles and musings by people more qualified to discuss the academic and cultural significance of this film than myself. I've never seen so many think pieces and cultural celebrations for a comic book movie, and that makes sense since no comic book movie has ever elevated and celebrated a specific culture or blends of cultures quite like Black Panther does. So I'll just run down what I liked and didn't like about it that stood out to me more than the generic stuff you may have already heard about this movie. Skip ahead about five minutes if you haven't seen it and don't want anything spoiled for you. I'll wait a moment to continue in case you need to dive towards the pause button. So starting with some small stuff, the Wakandan technology is really cool. There's some nice inventive stuff that shows off what vibranium can do, as well as how advanced the Wakandans are. Some of the best CGI in the movie is involved in this technology, so hats off to the special effects team on their imaginations here. The supporting cast also blew me away. Chadwick Boseman holds his own as King T'Challa, the Black Panther, but he pretty much just plays the straight man and foil for all of the more interesting characters throughout the movie. I'm not saying that he wasn't good, but that he allowed everyone else to shine brighter. I think the finest moment of the film came when Killmonger took the title of King of Wakanda and ate the special flower that would give him the power and abilities required of a Black Panther. Whereas T'Challa ate the stuff and hallucinated the plains of Wakanda with his ancestors and father passing on wisdom, Killmonger's vision was stuck in the Oakland apartments his father died in. His father, played by Sterling K. Brown, has a surreal, unsettling exchange with his son, and that scene was played so beautifully. The writing was thought out, and it hit all the right notes to elevate it beyond any other sequence in a Marvel Cinematic Universe film. But unfortunately, a few things didn't quite work for me, including the CGI action scenes. The fight scenes, aside from two ceremonial fights for the right to rule Wakanda, were pretty mediocre. T'Challa's final battle with Killmonger was a mixed bag, with a few good moments spicing up an otherwise uninspired back and forth. The CGI rhinos also looked pretty bad and didn't need to be in the movie at all. I was kind of curious as to why they threw those in, given how they ended up looking. Some of the jokes didn't really do it for me, but that's been the case with almost every Marvel movie and Black Panther wasn't as bad as, as, for example, Captain America Civil War. The script packed enough jokes that everyone in the audience will laugh at least once, and it's a Marvel movie, so it is what it is. From a plot perspective, I thought it was dumb that the audience was supposed to cheer for a white CIA agent shooting down Wakandan pilots. Everett K. Ross is implied to be one of the key protagonists of the third act showdown, but he's basically using drone warfare to kill Wakandans, and we're supposed to cheer for him. Anyway, it's a random nitpick, but all of that felt weird to me. There were a couple of writing discrepancies too, like Daniel Kaluuya's character Wakabi telling Black Panther early in the movie that Wakanda should stay hidden and keep its border closed then later in the movie being a staunch advocate for foreign intervention and a new world order. I also disliked how small Wakanda felt. You never meet any random Wakandans or see them beyond some extras in a marketplace that pops up twice in the movie. Even the bustling vibranium mine and Shuri's massive laboratory, there wasn't a single Wakandan to be seen. I had the same issue with Doctor Strange, where you see the Doctor training with other sorcerers, and you see the sorcerer Wong address a group of them before the final battle but then you literally see zero sorcerers engage in combat or plot activities beyond the main cast. The Marvel Cinematic Universe keeps playing a sleight of hand with how big these worlds are, but if you pay attention, the movies are smaller than they seem and smaller than they should be. The sense of scale is an illusion, and Black Panther had a wonderful chance to break that trend. 
The best we get is some CGI Wakandans dancing on the cliffs as T'Challa battled M'Baku for the crown. I can't really speak to the politics and cultural depth of the film, but there are dozens of fantastic think pieces supporting or criticizing the film on those factors, so I encourage you to seek those out or tweet at me for a few recommendations. I will say that on the character of Killmonger, there have been some valid points made about how people who think he was too extreme don't understand the rage that some black American youth feel. To that, I would say that the character of Killmonger waited his whole life to get to the point that he gets to. He had plans within plans within plans. He even killed Ulysses Claw, an enemy of Wakanda, specifically to ingratiate himself to the people of Wakanda. But then when he actually enters Wakanda, he burns bridges before they're formed. He makes no attempts at a good first impression, whether genuine or to further his plans. And any time he makes a valid socioeconomic point, he follows it up by physically or verbally threatening an old lady. If he was a man with a plan, he likely would have behaved differently. So from a writing standpoint, as opposed to a cultural standpoint, his actions were a disservice to the ideals and cunning that Killmonger supposedly had. And now to pivot from the Black Panther film to some of the more significant comics featuring that character, I'd like to begin my Marvel summary and review of Black Panther, written by Christopher Priest, with art by Mark Texiera and Vince Evans. Before I dive into the summary and review, I want to reiterate that while yes, I'm going to spoil the hell out of this book, I'm also going to leave out some details, breeze through some complex bits, and not reveal everything that happens, because while I am summarizing and reviewing this, I want you to get the book if it sounds interesting to you, and then find new and exciting things while you read it instead of having every note and nuance spoiled by the summary. So keep that in mind, and let's get to it. So specifically, these are the first five issues of Christopher Priest's run on Black Panther, and these came out in 1998 and 1999. The story begins with State Department Protocol Officer Everett K. Ross, not a CIA agent here, precariously balanced on a toilet in his underwear, half listening to a man named Zuri describe the modern history of his country, Wakanda. Zuri mentions a period of peaceful isolation under King T'Chaka that ended a decade prior after the rare element of vibranium was discovered in Wakanda and turned the nation into an economic powerhouse. Zuri is also an old friend of King T'Chaka, and is in New York as part of a Wakandan delegation led by King T'Challa, the son of T'Chaka. Later, as Ross is explaining the events of his time with the Wakandan delegation to his boss, he tells her what led to him, pantsless, squatting on top of a toilet in the middle of New York City. King T'Challa, aka the Black Panther, is open about his identity. Everyone knows that he's the Black Panther, so that makes it complicated when he visits New York and requests to stay in an East New York housing project. There, he's accosted by a local drug dealer and criminal named Manuel Ramos. Ramos knows who T'Challa is and even taunts the King of Wakanda for dressing up like a cat, but T'Challa is unfazed, even when Ramos draws a gun on him. He uses a nifty little gadget to electrocute Ramos into submission, and then orders his Dora Mulaje, aka his two female aides, Okoye and Nakia, to take out Ramos's henchmen. T'Challa takes Ramos himself up to the roof of a nearby building and roughs him up some more. As he tosses Ramos around the roof, T'Challa explains that a little girl was killed in New York at the Tomorrow Fund, a charity that T'Challa founded in the United States. His main reason to visit the United States, unofficially, was to find the killer and bring them to justice, using his presence as a visiting foreign head of state as a cover and official reason to come to America. Ramos, his life on the line, agrees to help T'Challa in any way he can. Everett K. Ross was assigned to the Wakandan delegation on behalf of the State Department, but also to see if he could find out anything about the Tomorrow Fund, which is suspected of being used for fraudulent purposes and embezzling federal grant money. 
Meanwhile, back in Wakanda, things are unstable as T'Challa has opened up a refugee camp for people fleeing ethnic wars in neighboring countries. But these camps are rife with tribal and regional differences, and Wakandans are beginning to resent their king's decision. Despite the unrest in his country, T'Challa insists on coming to New York after hearing about the little girl's death. And so, all of this led to Everett K. Ross following T'Challa as the king recruits local gangsters as unwilling operatives in his search for the little girl's killer. T'Challa easily gives Ross the slip and hunts down Marion Vicker, the managing director of the Tomorrow Fund who was just arrested for embezzling funds and laundering money through the charity. The Black Panther breaks into the prison Vicker is locked up in and interrogates her, trying to find out who corrupted her and convinced her to commit fraud with the American and Wakandan funds that were intended to help American children. After a brutal questioning, Marion Vicker gives the name Achebe. Ross explains to his boss that Achebe is Dr. Michael Ibn Alhaj Achebe, who has PhDs from Yale and is reportedly in Wakanda, stirring up trouble in the big refugee camp. Achebe is scheming to take over Wakanda by stirring up unrest within the camp and therefore throughout the country as citizens turn against their king for opening the camp. The Black Panther is familiar with Achebe and has interacted with him as Achebe is a representative of the Gudazai people who make up a portion of the refugees. Everett K. Ross suspects that Achebe is also responsible for the Tomorrow Fund fraud as well as the death of the little girl all of which might be part of his plot to get T'Challa out of Wakanda so he can take over the country for himself. T'Challa eventually tracks down the killer, but realizes that the man is just a pawn in Achebe's game, and Achebe himself is just a pawn in another entity's game. But before T'Challa can discover what malevolent forces control Achebe, the latter takes over Wakanda as the head of a so-called transitional government that promises to restore peace to the nation as it boils over with internal conflict over the king's refugee camps. Achebe's first order of business is reforming the Wakandan secret police that T'Challa had disbanded, and then sending those agents after the king. The Black Panther defeats these assassins and finds out that Achebe has taken over Wakanda at the behest of a demonic force. Yes, an actual demon. And that demon, Mephisto, is visiting Everett K. Ross in the housing project that the Wakandan delegation is staying in. Black Panther returns to the housing project just in time to save Ross from the demon, and quickly defeats it in battle, ripping out its heart. The demon, hurt but not overly bothered by the wound, offers T'Challa a deal, the king's soul in return for the restoration of Wakanda to his rule. The Black Panther refuses, but before he can do anything else, Mephisto zaps himself, the Black Panther, and Everett Ross down to his version of hell. Ross is flabbergasted, but Black Panther has no time to be surprised as they are ambushed by a specter armed with a submachine gun. T'Challa isn't overly concerned because he knows that in the real world, the demon is missing his heart which means that down in its version of Hell, Mephisto isn't at full strength. Facing a weakened demon, Black Panther is still in unfamiliar territory though. Mephisto forces T'Challa to relive the painful memories of losing his father, King T'Chaka, to Ulysses Claw, a foreign capitalist who sought to exploit Wakanda's vibranium resources. But T'Challa is too strong-minded to be that easily manipulated. He knows what Mephisto is up to and refuses to give in to the demon's trickery. Instead, he offers his own soul in return for the demon removing Achebe from Wakanda and leaving the country alone forever. Mephisto is so excited at the chance of getting T'Challa's soul that he doesn't realize they're no longer in his hell. They appear to be in a jungle, and the Black Panther informs the demon that he, as King of Wakanda, and as Black Panther, is bonded to the soul of the Panther God. Mephisto realizes that he's been tricked, but the Panther God consumes the demon and returns T'Challa along with Ross back to the reality of New York. Victorious for the moment, with justice for the little girl's killer and the removal of demonic forces trying to take over Wakanda, 
T'Challa now just has a very mortal Achebe to deal with. He checks in with his stepmother in Wakanda via video chat and finds out that without Mephisto's influence, Achebe is in a more precarious position as Prime Minister of a very wary Wakanda. T'Challa's stepmother tells Black Panther that Achebe has made a deal with her to share power with her in return for T'Challa staying in New York. The Black Panther's stepmother tells him that the deal is not ideal, but at least there's peace in Wakanda now. T'Challa begrudgingly agrees to stay away from his homeland and signs off, while his mother turns around to reveal that Achebe was standing behind her. They have been plotting to take over Wakanda, and even without Mephisto's help, they've managed to work out a way to do so and keep Black Panther out of the picture. On this alarming note, the first arc of this Black Panther story comes to an end. So yeah, this is the beginning of the story arc that made Black Panther a popular comic book again. And for the late 90s, sure, I can see it. It's kind of edgy, and it does a great job of reversing expectations as you go along. I certainly didn't expect a demon to pop up. Christopher Priest has a prescient understanding of politics in America and abroad that makes parts of the story feel really relevant today. He manages to juggle several plot points and characters by not putting forth a massive dramatic A-plot right off the bat. King T'Challa cuts an imposing authoritative figure, and his Dora Milaje are memorable in their own silently formidable right. It's also kind of cool that Okoye and Nakia ended up being characters in the movie, although the Dora Milaje are very different in the comic than they are in the film. The greatest accomplishment of this story is that it feels bizarrely realistic for a comic book, demonic stuff aside. The current events, the controversies and conspiracies, and the criminal and cultural issues all make this book feel like historical fiction. Again, aside from the demonic stuff. But of course, no story is perfect, and some older works show their age more than others. Humor doesn't always age well either, and the character of Everett K. Ross, a cabinet department attaché instead of a CIA agent here, is a prime example of that. While Ross serves an important narrative role as someone who can take and give exposition for readers, he spends about 90% of his time cracking jokes, and a lot of them don't hit. At times it even gets suffocating, especially in the first couple issues as Ross starts, stops, and restarts his story in an all-over-the-place narrative. T'Challa makes a strong but silent impression, and sometimes it feels too silent. We rarely get a good glimpse at what is going on in the character's head, and while there is something to be said for actions over words, this is a comic book. His few monologues and exchanges are quite good, and I wish that there were more of them in the formative issues of this run. The burden of dialogue is undertaken mostly by characters like Achebe, Ross, and Zuri, but the book is Black Panther, and I didn't get a good idea of what made Christopher Priest's Black Panther tick. Maybe he digs into that in later issues, and I look forward to reading those, but the first five felt more like T'Challa reacting than acting. The juggling of subplots and characters is usually balanced, but there are moments where it feels like Christopher Priest is dragging one thing along at the expense of another. As I mentioned, the first couple issues also have too much stop-and-start storytelling as Ross reports to his boss, and takes twice as many pages as he needs to to relay any information. I kind of get what Priest was going for, and it kind of works, but I was exhausted with Ross before the third issue. I struggled with this character in the movie too, but I guess I can say that I preferred his function in the comic, whereas I preferred his presence in the movie. He was a useful character in both, but neither execution really did it for me. Anyway, there were also a couple of odd writing discrepancies. Like, the lady who ran the Tomorrow Fund was named Marion Vicker in issue 2, but then called Sheila Vicker in issue 3. Alright, on to the artwork. The penciling by Mark Texiera is stunning. Really beautiful stuff that elevated the book. It looks like a painting more than a comic book, with penciling that looks like brushwork and color palettes that stand in contrast to the bright and occasionally garish comics of this era. A third of the panels would look great framed up on your wall. 
and every character has a distinctive, somewhat stylized but pretty realistic look except for Achebe, whose highly exaggerated features and wicked smile look like something out of a nightmarish acid trip. T'Challa's first appearance in the Black Panther costume is a beautiful page, with all of the characters' power and emotion captured in one pose. Vince Evans, the artist on the last issue I reviewed here, was true to the preceding style, and though his art was distinctive, Evans didn't present a distracting departure in style as he closed out this first arc. So overall I enjoyed these five issues, despite the criticisms I mentioned. Priest wrote dozens more and I look forward to getting to those too. I like Christopher Priest's writing on other comics, notably Quantum and Woody and Deathstroke, and it'll be interesting to see where he goes with Black Panther after these five issues. With the movie making waves around the world, I hope some of you check this out too, to investigate the modern retelling of the character that, while inspirational on the screen, is lacking some of the drive for justice that makes the comic so interesting. Alright, that does it for this episode of Batman v Batman. If you have any comments, criticisms, or suggestions for my next Marvel summary and review, let me know on Twitter at BVBPodcast. Another reason I took so long to get this episode done was that I started another podcast called Snark Nights Podcast. A friend and I review comic book movies and end each episode by drawing a random comic book movie out of a hat for the next episode. If that sounds up your alley, you can check it out on iTunes or on Twitter at SnarkNightsPod to get links to episodes. If you like the music, you can check out more like it at seedmole.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. I am pretentious. I am always right. I am Batuman. <laughs>